0: This is Bob Roark with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we have Todd Ordahl. Todd is the CEO of Applied Strategy, and he is also the author of Never Kick a Chip on a Hot Day. Great book. I've been through the book. Would recommend, if you have not, it is a how-to, and it tells you specific things you can do. So, Todd, thanks so much for being a guest on the show.
1: Thank you, Bob. Welcome to the People's Republic of Boulder. <laughs> Actually, That's North. Of... they let you in with your military background. You know?
0: And a pickup truck.
1: I had a pickup truck and I got one out there too.
0: <laughs> no wonder we live on the outskirts of town.
1: Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. Sure. I'm a former CEO and I now work with CEOs and help them, let's say, lead better, profit more, and sleep soundly at night and hopefully without narcotics. And that looks like coaching, strategy work, and then some organizational effectiveness. Mostly CEOs of... Let's call it fifty million to ten billion in range that I work with and industry agnostic and my works all over the country, a little bit international, but I hail from Boulder but don't do much work here. So
0: And for the folks they don't know your background. And you know, there's you know, when you're out in the space, there's a lot of consultants around on the planet. Uh-huh. But you did this for a living before consulting.
1: Yeah, I think the reason I have a voice in this world is because of all the mistakes I've probably made. And so there's not much that my clients can screw up that I haven't already screwed up. So I can hopefully help them make different mistakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm an operating guy. So I kind of come at this coaching consulting thing from a a CEO's perspective, as opposed to kind of the psych community, even though I've got an undergrad in psych. But, you know, I've made all those mistakes. I've been in their moccasins and felt their pain and and know it's lonely at the top. So I get where they're coming from. And I was going
0: through your book before the show and last night. And you have experience with Kinko's. Correct. Yeah. Some rather large store. Let's talk on a little bit of the backstory or background of you and Kinko's.
1: Yeah. I stumbled into Kinko's out of college, long family connection, ran a store, then ran more stores and more stores, and eventually ended up on the board there and had 7,000 people working for me. And this was during the growth years of Kinko's, and we just had an absolute blast. Building that company was so fun. I was there for 20 years and it was just a riot. In fact, one of your friends, Larry Hay, used to work for me when I was at Kinko's, but I had a division office here, and we eventually rolled that thing up and sold it to a private equity firm, and I stayed for three years after that, and then went and ran a couple of other smaller organizations. So that's the short story.
0: As you go through and you're working for Kinko's, and for those that don't know, it's an office supply event, correct?
1: FedEx eventually bought them. Yeah. And they kind of killed the name, but yeah. FedEx Office is what you would probably know them as now. Okay. The closest uh, thing to what it was. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's
0: that time frame, and, you know, you see it grow and you see the growing pains. And pretty much, I would imagine, pretty much every problem that you could run across, you ran across. And probably
1: created many of them myself, <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 exactly. That's
0: full employment. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, and then there's at some point where the organization started to mature. Yeah. and you guys were approached by the private equity group, right? When the offer first came in, not the specifics, but
1: what was going through your mind after 20 years, Kinko's? Yeah, really, it was our desire to sell the organization. I was not a large equity holder, but very unusual structures. And you're a financial expert, Sheila, and appreciate this. It was really 128 different S-corps with an umbrella organization. So the question is, how do we get out of this thing? So there were three problems that we had at that point. Number one was if I own, I'm a partner with the founder and I own a handful of stores, let's say Oklahoma City is my territory, and I own five stores in Oklahoma City, what do I do with them? How do I get out of this, right? I can't release my capital tied up here, number one. Number two, the internet was just coming around. We had to learn how to spell it back then. And it's like, huh, I wonder how we leverage the network effect of all these stores we now have because we were not at that point. And then there was a reinvestment piece. A lot of those owners were not reinvesting in their business. And this is what we were about to put in a wide area network, local area network, some of the technology expense that had, you know, capital expense we had to start working on. People were unwilling to do that. So how do we solve all those problems? You got to sell the company. Mm-hmm. So we brought Goldman in and they helped us package it. And It took us about three years of hard work pulling it together to get it ready to sell. And then we went out to the market. So that's kind of the way that thing happened. And that's probably the first
0: circumstance like that I'd heard of. And so it's all packaged up. Goldman's done whatever they're going to do. And you finally get an offer. Yeah. And Or not finally, but you get an offer that when you came home and talked to your bride and said, honey, I think it's going to sell. And then it sold. What was that like for you mentally, knowing that it went from Kinko's that you know to Kinko's
1: sold to another entity? My perspective was not so much as shareholder, because I said mine was not that I did have equity in a few stores, but I was more of a hired gun than some of the partners were. So at that point, I had enthusiasm for new ideas coming into the company, new capital coming into the company, new ways of doing business coming into the company. And there was a whole lot of work to be done because those was 128 different S-Corps on December 31st turned into a C-Corp January 1. And all of a sudden you got 128 different HR platforms, payables platforms, leadership styles that have to be resolved. And so it was an awful lot of work. A lot of the original founders left. We ended up replacing a lot of the kind of homegrown talent with some folks who had more traditional business skills. So there's just a lot of work to be done. So I was enthused when we got this thing pulled together. I also was of the belief that if we didn't do something, that we were going to start to deteriorate. And when we rolled it up, we were still growing, I believe 30% a year. So it was still a very healthy, growing business. But I knew that without some leadership changes, without changing the way we were doing things, it was not going to continue. So I had enthusiasm for it. Some of the equity folks, those people who owned 10, 15, 20 stores who really weren't working that hard, probably it was just a paycheck. I'm sorry, a big payday for them. Mm-hmm. Right? For me, it was more about what's the next big job, mm-hmm. right? which is kind of what it turned into for me. So it was fun. Yeah. And
0: so you went through the transition, got all the systems back. You know, I think about just melding together 100 plus HR systems. Yeah. Yikes. Herding cats. Yeah. And then you get to the period where your career ended with the
1: new entity. Yeah. And you transition to the next career, which was what? Well, what I transitioned to at the end of that one was 45 days of skiing and a couple of trips to Ireland with my kids just for fun. And I don't mind telling you the story. I ended up working for a guy. The roll-up was fun. We brought in a whole bunch of senior leaders, and I ended up in one of those senior leadership roles. And at one point, three years after the roll-up, I ended up working for a guy who I had zero respect for, and that wasn't going to work. And I said, you know, after 20 years of fun, I don't want to ruin this, right? I don't know if you had any similar experiences in your life or not. I bet in the Army you had a few clowns you had to deal with. No. Yeah. And so I laughed without knowing what I was going to do. And for the first time in my life, I had to go find something to do, right? What was that like? It was humbling. And in fact, I didn't tell my wife I was going to do it. I was during a phone call and and this guy once again said something I thought was just ridiculous. And I just said, you know what, this isn't going to work. Let's figure out a way for me to get out of here. And they asked me to stay for six months and it was an interesting experience. But to go look for a job initially scared the hell out of me. I mean, I came back from my hiatus and all that skiing and I walked into my office. It's like, I wonder if I unplugged my phone. It hasn't rung for a long time. (laughs) No, No one's missing me. Right, right, right. And the people you thought were really good friends... Turned out to be only business associates, right? Mm-hmm. And some other folks who you didn't know at all were willing to jump over, you know, blazing fires to help you, right? So I thought it was a fascinating experience. And we determined, we had four kids, young at that time, that we were going to stay in Boulder. Well, the natural thing for me was to go be a multi unit retail guy somewhere in a big city. And I said, you know, I'm just not going to do that. So I'm going to figure it out here. So I ended up running some smaller organizations. Mm-hmm. Sporting his company was the first CEO gig which was a turnaround thing that I did for a private equity firm. And that was a mess. And, you know, happy to share that story. But that was... And we talked about stories before. Yeah.
0: And I think, you know, in the age of all the technology and all this, that and the other, I still think that we're all very well wired for the story side. And I think that's both of our preference. Right. And, you know, I think of going from this massive organization, and then you did the consolidation of all the back office And then left there for an integrity reason, sounds like to me. Yeah. and Twice um, in my career, I did that. You know, you only get your integrity one time. Yeah, that's right. You know, and then you go to a messy turnaround situation. Well, there may be a lesson or
1: two in there. Let's dig into that. Yeah, that one, there are a number of lessons that I learned. So this thing had been started by two entrepreneurial smart founders, and they had grown rapidly, and they took an investment from a PE firm, and the wheels fell off very quickly. And so one of the founders left and they asked me to come in and fix this thing. And the first three months, I mean, fix it like bank covenants are broken. We've got manufacturing problems in China, got product recall issues. It was a disaster. And I didn't know that business model whatsoever. Never been to China, selling through that retail channel, dealing with the clowns in that industry. And there were a bunch of them. That Interestingly, that industry at the time a lot of the executives were sort of former frustrated high school football players, right? <laughs> and so you kind of get, you understand mm-hmm. what they're, oh, sure. they were all about. So, you know, we fought fires for two or three months and that thing was about ready to go broke. And we got him out of the tailspin and about three months in, I walked into my office one day and I thought, okay, that fire's smoldering, this one's smoldering, the bank's relatively happy. I've been to China and done some work there. I got half of the team who now like me because I was the fix it guy. The other half still hated me, but that's okay, right? So what do I do now? Right? I mean, I'm not out of answers. I'm out of questions. So yeah, for me, that was a seminal moment. If I can share a quick story about that time, I had read this vignette about a guy who won the Nobel Prize. His name was Isidore Rabi, And in his acceptance speech, it's for physics, he's long dead. In his acceptance speech, he credited his mother. And he said, when I was a little boy, I would go home and all the other children's parents would say, did you give the right answers today? And my mother would say, Izzy, did you ask a good question today? And for some reason, that just resonated with me. So I shut my door in my office and I thought, what are the questions I have to ask to be able to succeed in this environment? And that just, I guess it was sort of self-learned through that vignette. So I crafted this list of questions to keep me on track. So that was perhaps one of the most seminal learning experiences I had in my career, quite frankly.
0: And back to the book. You talk about that in your book. Yeah. You know, and we're going to say that name again for the folks that missed it at the beginning. It's never kick a cow chip on a hot day. You wouldn't typically search by that title. <laughs> probably not. Yeah. You know, I grew up in farm country, so, well, you know. Yeah. You don't kick a cow chip unless it's really dry on right. any given day. Right. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. You probably just ought not kick yeah. it. Yeah.
0: Right. But I think about the evolution, you know, you go from a long career at one firm, the transition from that into a private equity firm. yeah, And then departure from there and doing a turnaround. And
1: obviously, the turnaround worked. Yeah, we got them going again. And then I got recruited away to go do a startup. So I had that experience as well. And then went on to another interim CEO thing. And then eventually came into this consulting coaching world. So yeah, it's a storied background, right? And as I said, I just experienced an awful lot of stuff and made a lot of mistakes. So it allows me to have some context when I'm working with clients now, trying to help them figure out how do I solve this problem? How do I get to the next level? How do I get through the crap I'm going through on a daily basis? Because I kind of get where they're coming from, right? I feel their pain.
0: And shifting gears a little bit, so kind of touched on some of your backstory. And you're now in the consulting role. So when you left basically the employment and operating 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 world, and you went into the consulting world, what do you think the key differences between
1: running a company And running a consulting firm? Great question. A lot of folks who have operating backgrounds at one point in their career say, gee, I'd like to be self-employed, perhaps I'll go consult. And what they don't realize is running things and helping others run things is way different. The biggest issue is you have to hold back and not share the answers. You got to ask questions. So I don't show up in buildings and tell people what to do. What I do is try and bring good questions and help them sort through their own problems. So It's the process part of consulting that has to be learned. I can still leverage my business background, and all those mistakes and some of the successes I had, but I have to do it in a different way. It's not show up and tell them what to do, it's show up and ask them questions to get to their own answers, right? So it's the process of consulting, the process of coaching. And I spent oodles and oodles of money and time learning that after leaving the operating career, much like you spent a lot of money and time learning how to do this podcast venture you're doing. I see people make that mistake. They think, I ran something, therefore, I can consult. And that's not the case. Different skill set. And I think you're either working or looking for
0: work, working or looking for work. And I think from many of the consultants I run across, you're either
1: good at one or the other. Yeah. And it's rare that you enjoy both. Yeah. I had to learn to enjoy looking for work. I just view it as a puzzle at this point, And that makes it fun for me. You know, Like you, I enjoy relationships. I enjoy conversation. I mean, life's about conversations, right? I mean, don't you think, right? So how do I get into more conversations? So I actually enjoy that piece of it as well. The client work itself is quite fun as well, but I don't mind the marketing piece of it. Learning to balance that as a solopreneur is difficult. You know, going from seven thousand employees to zero, you have complete control of your workforce. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if and your they wife don't you don't listen very well, if right?
0: you <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you have a habit. Actually, you have one long-term habit and one shorter-term habit: snow skiing yeah. and fly fishing. Yeah, right. And I think about. The continual reference to snow skiing, and for you, when you went on some of your ski trips, and did you find that that was useful when you were thinking about your clients, or did much come to you on the
1: slope? Yeah, it does. I like that question. I think I do my best thinking sometimes in a chairlift. At least that's my way of justifying my, you know. It works for me. Yeah. Or on a bike, and I think one of the things that probably both you and I have to do is set aside that time to reflect. And think about what's working and what's not, and how can I apply previous experiences to current experiences. So yeah, absolutely, I build in time in my week and in and every day to do that. In fact, I have a list of eight questions I ask myself every night. I score myself on them, right? Just as a reflection tool. I learned that from a guy by the name of Marshall Goldsmith, who's a very famous coach, and it keeps me oriented. And you have to find that time, especially doing the work I'm doing. There are some consultants who are very process-oriented. They're helping folks install SAP, which would bore the hell out of me, quite frankly, but their work is different. Mm -hmm. That's different work than I do. Mine is more about thinking, how do I help this woman or this man think through the issues they have, right? So, it is reflective work. So, how did this most recent fly fishing (laughs) illness arrive? That's a good question. My brother and his wife came out to visit, who are both executives. And he said, this is quite a few years ago, said, hey, we should go fly fishing. And I said, sure, I'll find a guide. And we did. I had done it before, but the bug didn't catch me back then. And we went out and had just a wonderful day up in Rocky Mountain National Park, caught mostly six and seven inch trout, which is fun. And it was fun enough that I went back out with that guy a few times. And I said, hey, would you help me buy gear? And I did. And I've been out with a bunch of other guides. And now it's just turned into an affliction. As we sit here, it's June. And I've probably been out from January through June. I bet I got 30 days in already. So And some of those are partial days, and some of them are, you know, in the snow. And I lasted 15 minutes, but you know how it is—is that you're a vast fisherman? Yeah, I've got it bad too, you know, and it's not rational. Yeah, it's really not. It is the most peaceful activity. I mean, standing in some moving water and watching that thing float until something grabs it—it's just fun, isn't it? You know, and I think about people that don't have
0: the fishing affliction. I think one, your mind empties a great deal, and I think things come unbidden. Right. Well put. And you kind of go. Hmm, folks that you work with and work for, you say, I was thinking about you the other day and you know, you hope they don't ask you when or where and you go, <laughs> Well I was you know, I was in I was fishing as I right. was thinking about you and they, right. but you know, you think about it, it comes in and maybe two disparate thought processes link up for those folks and, and for the guy that's gotten those to the grindstone hundred percent of the time. Yeah. I think I would urge whoever's listening that doesn't have a bad affliction like either. <laughs> Bicycling or skiing or right. My sport was water skiing. Growing yeah. up in the south, yeah. nothing froze in the south. Yeah, um, by and large. Yeah, and so on. But yeah, I grew up in Minnesota. We used to ski too. So yeah, that's Oh um, Yeah, thinking a little bit in your book, you mentioned that your son served in the Marine Corps. Yes, sir. And yeah. I think about the role of a parent at some point. You know, when they're younger, it's more you do, and they, by and large, most of the time, follow. How do you see your role changing from pre-service to post-service for your son? Uh
1: with him. Mm -hmm. I admire all my kids. We have four. Danny specifically, I mean, he's always just been a very service-oriented young man, and he would come home from school and watch the military channel. Maybe a better question is, and my kids are 28 and 30,
0: and I think of what I'm doing now versus maybe what I thought I would be doing. And being that you're a consultant and a coach, I was curious
1: where you see those things crossing over
0: with your kids.
1: Yeah, well, I now realize that when they were about five, they quit listening to me. So I don't tell them what to do anymore. right? And in fact, it's interesting. I find myself calling my kids for advice occasionally now, which is fun, isn't it? I mean, the tables kind of turn. So I think learning from our kids is really an interesting venture as they get older. One of our daughters, who's very much like my wife, is just this very, very creative artist. And when she was young, I thought, Good Lord, this is just frustrating. She and I don't speak the same language, and now I think, god, if I want to see the world in a different way, I need to see it through her eyes, right? Or through Danny's eyes, the marine. The conversations that you can have with your children when they do get into their 30s are it's fascinating. So I learn a lot from my kids at this point, and it's they do call for counsel occasionally, and if I'm smart, I respond with a question rather than here's what you should do, because that still doesn't work that well, doesn't work with my wife either, by the way, and it doesn't work with me when she tries it to use it on me. So it does help. I mean, going through the, all that coach training and all these, I don't know, thousands of hours of coaching I have under my belt now it is a wonderful learning experience. But I think I learn a lot more from my clients than they ever learn from me, which is fun.
0: I describe it rather poorly as I'm the world's worst business lawyer. I mean, I love going inside business and going like, how'd you think of this? Why'd you do what you did? Right. Right. I mean, you're successful doing this and you hear the backstory. And I think many folks that have never owned a business have
1: a misconception. I agree. You know, they have no idea by and large. Yeah. Well, about a lot of things. The stress level that it can put on you, what it feels like to have to make payroll when things are tight, assigning personal guarantees, all that stuff. If you're an owner or even if you're a hired gun, I mean, the responsibility for all those lives, if you take this personally and their success as well as your own, is it's a daunting role to be in, but fun too. Oh, yeah. And really, if you believe in capitalism, as I do, if you believe that business is what makes the world tick, or economics, as I do, where else would you rather hang your hat, right? I mean, it's a good place to be. Well, you just end up serving. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. solving problems and helping folks out. And, that's right.
0: And that's what I see. And as we're sitting here, we're sitting next to the bookshelf. And as I was driving over, I was listening to some guy says, the average CEO reads about 60 books a year. And I think about my reading habits, you know, part of this one, part of that one, back to this one, you know, and around. For you, do you still find yourself as
1: engaged reading as you were when you're in the organizations? That's a really good question. When I was young, I used to think there was an answer to everything. And so I read constantly looking for the answer. And now I realize that there are multiple answers. There are just multiple paths and you have to choose one. And when I think about the reading I do now, I do more history reading and more biography reading, then here's how you should do that. You know, at the end of the day, I could reach behind you. In fact, it's right over your left ear is one by Drucker called Management, that big old book right there. That thing is probably from 1970. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that anything better has ever come out. I probably could have quit reading. For those that can't see from the video. Yeah, that was from grad school. Probably the best book I ever read, most influential person I've ever run across. Wish I would have met him personally, never did. So a lot of the other stuff on that shelf is rehashed Peter Drucker. And so I read less and less of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's not as though I know it all. It's just through the lens of being 60 rather than 30. You say, you know, I kind of get how the levers of business operate. Things change, right? Now we have to worry about things that we didn't worry about before. Cryptocurrency is of interest to folks and security and all the stuff that with your background, you know something about. But at the end of the day, business is still business. You have to identify a need that can profitably serve and how do we do that, right? So I still read a ton. I like a lot of fiction. I'm a spy sort of like the spy world. And I still do read business books as well. But we were talking about strategy earlier this morning when you got here. And and if I piled up all my strategy textbooks, it's a big pile. And as you said, at the end of the day, but yeah, what do you do with it, right? So I'm more interested in what's the application of all this stuff rather than some new theory. So, yeah, still love to read, but that Drucker book was seminal, and I still pull that thing out frequently, and it's just as valuable today as it was in 1970, whatever that thing was written. So, wonderful stuff. You know, back, I was thinking back
0: in college in those days, on campus, we had a computer. Yeah. One. Yeah. punch. Yeah, right. I did the same thing. You know when I was first assigned down at Fort Carson, we had a computer on post uh payroll, yeah, you know, card punch, right, and now, of course, they're you know everywhere from your wristwatch on, yeah, but you know last topic, and you talk a bit about leadership, do you get much question or conversation about how do I take and, and lead? Do you get much of that?
1: Sure, probably not asked exactly that way, except for maybe younger folks. Most of my clients end up being kind of 50s and 60s, Mm -hmm. although I have a couple of younger coaching clients right now. And I've had some in the past who ended up in very senior roles. I mean, I have a C-level executive right now who's not 40 in a large company. And he has those questions. And so we talk through that. And there is no one right way. I think there are some things that work better than others. You got to care about your people. I mean, you know, we could run through the litany of things Mm -hmm. that I think are important. But yeah, leading and managing are things you can learn and you've done many of these podcasts now, you've heard different methodologies from lots of different folks who've been successful. And I think, you know, you have to combine sort of what works in a management and leadership role with your own value system and answer those questions yourself. But searching for the answers, struggling to come up with the answers to those questions and asking the right questions, you know, who do I need to be as a leader? Great question, Mm -hmm. right? And so, yeah, it's something that I spend a great deal of time talking about. And periodically, you run across folks and you go, you know, a little concerned
0: about this and or you run across the folks who'll say, We don't think that leadership is taught very well. Yeah. And you know, and of course the military probably does a more regimented, systematic method of teaching and developing leaders right. than probably any other discipline simply yeah. because they have no other choice.
1: Yeah. I didn't understand that till our son went into the Marines, but wonderful organization as is all the services, but I think there's an awful lot of learning that goes on there that the rest of the world would benefit from. You know part of the problem is you go to school and you try and learn leadership from folks who've never led anything. That's a challenge, right just like my coaching and consulting practice, quite frankly, there are a lot of folks out there coaching executives who've never been in a leadership role who never had to worry about making payroll or the h r problems that have come up or a shift in strategy or there's a benefit to having that background.
0: You know one thing I did want to touch on, and I was reading it this
1: morning in the book,
0: difference between strategy and tactics, yeah, you just said. I think both of those. And for many folks, I don't think that they get the differential.
1: Yeah. I'm sure you have a perspective as a military guy, but strategy is one of those words that gets talked about frequently. And if you ask 100 CEOs what it means, you're going to get 400 answers, right? So, you know, I've got multiple ways to describe it, but, you know, you've got to answer at the end of the day. Strategy has to say, where do we play and how do we win? One way I like to think about it is vision is where we're going. Strategy connects current reality to that vision. So, it's what do we do to get from here to here? And tactics are the how, right? So, strategy has to start with a sort of global statement that says, this is what we're going to do to win in our marketplace. This is why they'll buy from us versus somebody else to get from here to here. And then tactics are how. No real bright line there. There's a wonderful quote by Sun Tzu in The Art of War. He says, tactics before strategy is the noise before defeat. Right. And so you got to start with the big level stuff. That's fun work. And I enjoy helping folks kind of sort that out. Yeah. And the vision statement, trying to not just something on the wall. That's right. Yeah. It's going to mean something.
0: And it shouldn't be, I want to be rich because your people don't care about that. Right. No. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think about that one comment that you made before where you said it's not just about you, that you're responsible for the people in your organization. Yeah. And I think if you have some level of concern, empathy, and kind of go, you know, I have a lot of other mouths to feed. Other than just my family, right? And I'm responsible for their well-being and development. Yeah, and that sounds easy to say. Yeah, no, leadership has obligations, right? You can't just preside; you got to lead. Yeah, and yeah, nothing like leading from the front. Yeah, absolutely. So shifting gears, I think we could stay here a while, and this would be a very long podcast. Oh, no doubt.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you got a couple of gabby guys yeah. about, right? Oh yeah. yeah.
0: And so for you, what's the most recent book? that you've read or influential
1: book that's altered your perception on what you do? Probably a book by Pinker. You know, Steven Pinker, Harvard psychologist called Enlightenment Now, I believe, and the subtitle is fascinating. And it's not specifically a business book. It's a book that I've been buying for all my clients and a bunch of my friends. I'm sure I've got one on the shelf here. I could pull out for you somewhere, but there it is right down there below you. Steven Pinker, blue. Yep, that's it. Back to this. What's fascinating about it is, yeah, there's a lot of data in there. And what you discover is the world's a pretty good place. And it's been getting better and better and better when you take the long view. So, you know, getting all amped up about the headlines every day in the paper is just maybe not worthwhile. That's a fascinating book. There's a lot of economic theory in there. And this is an admitted liberal guy from Harvard who brings all these lessons to you. But that's one I've been commending to kind of anybody I can get in front of him. It's about reason and about rational thought versus just all this emotional crap that goes on in the world. I think it applies to business. It applies to life in general. So that one really hit me. Good book. I'm going to reread it because I think I probably missed a few things. You know, it, it is
0: interesting. People, I think, forget that the news channels are in the business of selling ads. Yeah, that's right. And if they can take an extreme comment, regardless of what you believe, all right. and cause you to tune in again, yeah, it doesn't necessarily equate to being useful news.
1: Yeah. Well, I just think we have a dearth of fact-based conversations going on in the world right now. You pick the reason. I can give you a couple of mine, but that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's a lot of falsehood out there. And so that book would, you probably come away from it learning some things, but also saying, in the long view, things are really pretty good and they're getting better. You know, we still got lots of problems in the human race, but they're a lot less than they're used to. Dying at 47,
0: like we did, is not where we're at on lifespan yeah, you know, 100 exactly. years ago. One thing I failed to ask you, you're a licensed If I shut up, you could ask more, huh? No, I was thinking about this as you were talking. As a licensed pilot, you flew twin engine, yes? Yeah. When you look at the broad range of business folks that you know, and they're the pilots and the non-pilots, huh. do you think there's a key distinction between the two? That's an interesting question. Other than the fact that all pilots
1: are smarter, which my yeah. father-in-law was a fighter pilot. So. Was he?
0: Yes. What do you fly? He flew thuds.
1: Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I think you learn process, learning to fly airplanes or you'll kill yourself, right? I mean, it's about checklists. It's about doing things in a sequence, about learning those things that will harm you and ignoring some of the other stuff. It's about preparation. You got. I, mean, I used to fly a bunch of instrument conditions and you got to know what you're getting into. And you got to know what to do when this happens and that happens. And it's about problem solving. I don't think I ever thought about it in those terms, but it's a pretty unique experience to learn to do that and then be able to apply it to the rest of your life.
0: I think about the difference between being in a car and being in an airplane. And, you know, the car is, in my mind, 2D or 3D, yeah, it's, but it's not multi-dimensional. Right. Or as my friend says, the enemy of flying is a lack of altitude. Yeah. But I think about the aviators and their perspective, because up, down, left, right, and up is yeah that way, yeah. just to the top of the
1: cockpit. So if you're upside down, up is really right there. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure that I ever thought about have I learned life lessons from my flying experiences, but you do. That's a good question. Safety, like You've got to be current. Yeah, and I'm not anymore. And in fact, I used to fly a lot and I quit flying a lot and I was legal and current by FAA standards, but I didn't feel comfortable, so I quit. I thought, you know, this is not a good place to be if you don't feel competent. Because so, the difference old, between legal old, and competent is, yeah. I flew in college and a scholarship and we flew
0: the little Cessna 150s. Yeah. I was probably the most dangerous thing when I was in yeah. the air. On what Little knowledge, lots of freedom.
1: Yeah. I don't That's know true. what they were thinking. Yeah. When I look back now, it's like, you know, you get your license and that first trip you go on by yourself, you think, well, I look back on it now and go, it's a wonder we don't all kill ourselves, right? Well, you know, you're flying with a map on your knee. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And yeah. Now, oh, yeah. With your finger on the map, right? Exactly. So now, you know, you look at it, you have an iPad GPS and they go, oh, yeah. And, yeah. and so... But you still got to know the basics because that stuff goes... Battery, right? It does yeah. <laughs> clunk <laughs> occasionally, right? Yeah. Well, I digressed. I had to ask because yeah. I was thinking about that when I was reading yeah. early this morning. Yeah. For you looking back over your career, I presume there was a failure at the time It was an apparent failure. How did that serve you or your company best or set you up for future achievement and why?
1: Yeah. I mentioned earlier that I twice, I think I mentioned this, twice left jobs for what I would call ethical reasons. And you might consider those failures, but in a way they were very good learning experiences and they were both high paying jobs so it wasn't easy but the benefit of being able to consider yourself self employed even when you're not i think is maybe what i learned and reinforce the lesson that you know leadership is kind of everything in those organizations so those you might call them failures or someone might but with the hindsight of a lot of years now they feel like just good learning experiences and i think if you What do you call them in the military? After action reviews, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think every time you kind of fail in an organization, even if it's a minor failure, and if you don't fail, you're not trying, right? So, one of the things I've had to learn is to not be afraid of failure as I've gone into the solo piece, which I've been doing for 13 years now. But those two experiences were both very good learning experiences for me. I wasn't comfortable at the time saying, I'm out of here, but I think it was the right choice. So, yeah, the failure stuff. Is more fun for me now than it used to be. I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, so it's hard to... That's where you're still a, oh, a, a surviving to, pilot. Yeah. Well, nobody likes to bruise their ego too much, right? Mm-hmm. So, but it's gotten more comfortable. And for me to say, I don't know, is now easy. It used to be hard to do when I was 30 years old, even with clients. You know, I get questions occasionally. I say, you know, I don't have a clue how to answer that question. Let's go figure it out. Mm-hmm. Right, Makes you human. Yeah, that's right.
0: You know, if you could put an ad on the local paper or your favorite paper sharing your message or advice, what would it say and why?
1: Probably wouldn't put it in the Boulder paper. (laughs) I think it would just be a bold headline that said, it's lonely at the top and I can help. We talked earlier and in your experience with a lot of the executives and business owners you've talked to is that, or your friend at the NSA, who do you talk to, Mm -hmm. right? Where do I bring my problems? Sometimes the problems are about my team. And so who do I talk to about that? Sometimes the problems are about my board. So who do I talk with about that? I have to, in some regards, appear as though I know what I'm doing. So if I believe our strategy is incorrect, who helps me through that process, right? So I'm that guy. And because I've been in their shoes and I can bring process to help them and questions to help them get through those issues. So it doesn't have to be lonely at the top. Be that might be the headline. You know, I
0: was thinking as you were talking is, you know, most of the time, you know, you think that there's this problem or other, but there could be a technological shift or a regulatory shift and your company's running fine until you have the regulatory shift. Yeah, And all of a sudden you kind of go, uh-oh. Yeah. What used to work doesn't, now what?
1: Yeah. No, it happens. Unfortunately, many executives don't think about changing until the brick wall is too close. And you got to have a methodology to sort of scan in the horizon to see what's out there, you know, what's around the corner and what might be thinking about that will change our business. Some of it's quite predictable. In the Wall Street Journal this morning, they are talking about the number of folks in our age group, how it's increasing, of course, the impact on Social Security. That stuff's predictable. Some things aren't, you know, a new ruling by the National Labor Relations Board had significant impact on one of my clients at one point years ago. Nobody saw it coming, and all of a sudden it was a huge threat to their business model, right? They perhaps couldn't have predicted that, but a lot of the businesses who end up with challenges they have to deal with could have predicted them if they've been looking
0: out for you on time allocation. What's the best allocation of a time or initiative
1: that's helped you the most with what you're doing? Time allocation. I think the practice, if this is what you're asking, is I've learned to become more of a slave to my calendar. So I spend Monday mornings planning, you know, for an hour. Friday afternoons, I recap. As I mentioned, I've got a daily recap as well to keep me on track. And those practices, as simple as they might be, keep me relatively organized. I'm a relatively organized guy to begin with, but without those practices I can get off track. We all can. Easy to drift. Absolutely. And, you know, there's nobody around here telling me what to do. Right. So if I don't do it, I'm in trouble. I do have a coach though. I think it would be in some ways sort of ludicrous for someone who does coaching as a living to not have a coach, but so I do have an accountability partner who keeps me on track. So I share my objectives with him. We talk about how to best meet those objectives and he asks me questions and Next month, we're going to sit down and talk about what I got done and what I didn't and why. And usually the answer why I didn't is something in here, right? So I hope I answered your question. No, that's, yeah, I think so. And then you said you have this habit. You have the, like you talked about, there was the eight points that you look at every day. And once again, I learned this from Marshall Goldsmith. So the question is, did I do my best to, and there's a psychological reason for asking it that way. And seven of those eight things are not really business related. One of them is learn. One of them is eat healthy. One of them is be kind to my wife, right? So I got those kinds of things in there. And I rank myself on a one to 10 scale. I don't do it on the weekends. doesn't mean I'm not nice to my wife on the weekends, but so I do it every Monday through Friday at five o'clock. There's a little alarm that goes off and I sit down and I answer those questions. And it's almost irrelevant what the answers are, the score is, but it does drive my thinking. It drives what I'm going to do the next day. It causes me to look back at my calendar and say, "I just squandered a couple of hours doing something when I should have been working on one of these." See, so, so as a data guy, I'd want to know if you were trending. Pardon? See, so, yeah, I'd want to do a statistical yeah. go back looking at my when trending. When I first started, I kept looking at numbers, and I got a little too wrapped up in that mm-hmm. stuff. And now I just answer the questions. Yeah. And you know, it is interesting. Feels like a great day, and you can't tell you, you don't know why because those things kind of hit my value system as well. I answer those questions, and they end up being a pretty good score. And I go, "Now I know why." Right. Where in the past, you know, you'd go pour, that, mar- go pour that martini and say, yeah. Yeah, I had a great day, but I'm not sure why. And now I know why, right? Or if I feel frustrated at the end of the day, I now know why. You know,
0: I think on a feedback loop, you know, you said, I had a great day today because of, and you go, well, if I want to have a great
1: day tomorrow. Right. <laughs> do more <laughs> yeah. of that one, you know. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it causes me to change my behavior a little bit, which is the only way we can improve. So. What's the most
0: unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you most?
1: it's probably those questions. Mm-hmm. I've started to ask my clients to do this technique and I'm getting some real aha moments from them. Like, wow, you know, first let's identify what those questions are for you because they're different for everybody. Mm-hmm. But that's one that's helped me tremendously, but it's starting to help my clients quite a bit as well. You know, it's a tool. It is a tool. And I think about,
0: there's a lot of them. We talked about this before too. There's a lot of this consultant speak for lack of a better term. Yeah. And then, you know, they come in, create a report, drop it on your desk and go, we're all counting on you. Good luck. You know, and this is an application Yeah. where you can go through and you go, okay. And, you know, and conceivably you could change your questions over time as oh, things sure. change. I'm sure I will. I've changed mine a couple times already. And you think about that as a feedback loop again. Right. And I'm all about actionable tools. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So over the past three years, what belief or protocol have you established that's helped you and this company most?
1: Belief or protocol. I have probably my esteem around my ability to help executives has continued to increase since I've been doing this. I don't know if we call that a three year horizon. It goes back further than that. And I think we all deserve to have healthy self esteem. And so I've brought that to the table. And the more confident I am with my clients, the better off I am. I mean, I've asked my clients a few times, What value did you get from this? Was this helpful? Why? Whether it's a strategy project or a coaching assignment or whatever. And what I've heard multiple times is because you'll call bullshit and you'll tell me the truth when everybody else is telling me what I want to hear. Once again, I may not be answering your question. No, I think on these questions,
0: it's there's not a right or wrong. Yeah. And what I'm looking for in the questions for many of the listeners, they're going to go, well, what do you think about this? What's the tool can I use? What's your insight that you brought to the table? What changed you know, for you or your clients? And this is kind of a way to prompt that event. Yeah. So for you, Here's a what advice would you offer to a new CEO that's assuming the role of CEO for the first time?
1: Gosh, if I didn't say read my book, I'd be an idiot, wouldn't I? Right. Well, you know, you got to say read your book. Yeah, of course. And, and, and what?
0: And I would agree. It's really, I've read lots of them, and there's not a lot of them that give you here are some very specific things to do.
1: Yeah. It is interesting when you get into that role. So I went from being president of this large division with 7,000 people, but I was not CEO. I didn't really own, I own the P&L, but I didn't own strategy. To so that turnaround thing was my first real CEO title. And it felt a whole lot different. And one of the questions that first day is like, what do I do here? Right? And there are some answers to that question. And there are different answers, but you got to pick some. And so I tried to help that. one, I, We talked about Danny and the Marines. And what do they call them? The Marine Handbook, I guess it was, when he first joined. And I, I remember pulling this thing out and reading. I mean, there's everything in there from how to choke a guy and throw a grenade to shoot a gun, you know. And so maybe in some ways what I tried to replicate was, you know, how do I become a CEO? It's not that long a book. You get through it in about two beers, but I think it'll give you some flavor. Okay, now well, you know, pushing the book here, but I think the one thing I would tell him, you ask me what's the one thing, go to work and learn every day, and you know, don't eat lunch by yourself and read. And engage with others in your community. Because when you've got the title, even if it's a smaller company, you can call other people and they'll respond to your phone call, right? Mm-hmm. You and I have to beg our way in occasionally. They'll respond to those people. So go find other folks you can learn from. Kinko's, we were a very non-traditional company and we didn't have a bunch of X whatever in our company. There were no X, you know, Procter & Gamble people in there telling us how to market our organization. We all just figured it out. But one of the smarter things I did was I realized that you know, passion and interest alone won't get you there. So how do I run this organization more effectively? What processes and tools do I put in place? How do I communicate more effectively? So I would just go out and search out people in the community and I'd just cold call them and say, hey, look, here's what I do. Can we have a cup of coffee? And I'd like to hear what's going on. It's much what you're doing with this podcast series, right? I think that increased the speed of learning for me. Just trying to find as many smart people as I could talk to. That's what I would do. That works. Yeah. You know,
0: looking over the past few years, what would or should you have said no to and why? What words?
1: No, what should you have said no to? What should I have said no to? This will maybe be more of a generic answer than you're looking for, but, you know, we can always go make another buck, but we can't make another minute. So it's probably the things I should have said no to, the category of things were things that I should have just said, this is a time suck and I don't need to be doing this. And, you know, I like to be pleasant with people, but there are some folks who want to meet with you you just shouldn't meet with, Mm -hmm. right? So that's probably it. Yeah, between nice and kind. I remember something about that. That's right. Exactly. Right. More of the book stuff. Yeah. So I've learned to say no. I'm pretty assertive. I now say no to some things that I perhaps would have said yes to in the past just to try and be nice. One of my best clients who's just a brilliant CEO, but he was such a pleaser that he wouldn't turn down any requests for lunch. And he finally realized, I just can't keep doing this. I'm burning both ends. It's not working. And sometimes you have to risk offending people to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. So he learned that lesson, but that's probably where it falls. There's some things I've done that were a waste of time that I don't begrudge wasting some money to try and something new, learn something new, but you know, wasting a bunch of time on something, that bothers me. You don't get that back. No, right? you don't. That's right. So in the day-to-day operation of your company,
0: what's the personal habit or self-talk dialogue that keeps you and your company focused?
1: There are a few lessons. Those eight questions keep me focused. The other thing Is In spite of the fact that I'm fairly high-priced and I do this for a living, I'm really doing this to help people. And it's that nice versus kind thing you just referenced. So it might be nice for me to tell my clients what they want to hear, but it's not kind. It's not the right thing to do. So for me, it's just to be brutally honest and try and help people get some insight into the things that they don't see. And after a while, you kind of go, I've seen this movie before. Yeah. The context is always a little bit different, but many of the challenges are pretty similar. You could make a list of them probably. I bet with 12, 13, 14, you get most of them.
0: Mm-hmm. So for folks to find you, folks as men I've got to talk to them. How do they find you on
1: social media? I don't spend much time on Facebook or some of the platforms, but I'm on LinkedIn. You can certainly get to my website. They can find me on Amazon. Yeah, and Why your website again is? It's just ToddOrdal.com mm-hmm. or AppliedStrategy.info, which and is it's my company. O-R-D-A-L. O-R-D-A-L. O-R-D-A-L, right. And I spent some time on LinkedIn, and I've got a blog I write weekly, so they could connect with me on that one too, and sign up on the website. So a website or LinkedIn would probably be the two easiest ways to find me. A quote
0: that you find meaningful or one that you use frequently?
1: We talked a lot about the value of questions, and there's a French nobleman, Gaston, I think was his last name, who said something to the effect of, judge a man by the quality of his questions rather than the answers. And once again, I keep coming back to that whole question theme, but I think life is about slowing the game down just enough to ask the right questions, because the right answer to the wrong question is always going to be wrong for that situation. And what I see with executives and my habit as well is to try and rush to the answer when you have to take more time asking the right question, right? So it's that quote about questions, I guess. It
0: sounds simple to say, ask the right question, but you have to have some level of experience or intuition or
1: something to make sure you ask the specific question. That's right. But you can go find knowledgeable folks and say, if you were me, what questions would you be asking? You can find some wonderful books out there and ask some of those questions. But, And I've got a list of a few of them in the book that might be helpful. I speak to CEO groups, and one of the pieces in that presentation is around asking the right questions. And we go through some seminal ones that I think would be important as CEO to ask and one of the challenges is trying to try and get CEOs to talk less and listen more, and it pertains to all of us, I guess. Yes. So, last one, and I'll quit wearing you out with my
0: questions. If colleagues were asked what you're best at, what would they say, and how do you utilize that particular strength on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah, I think it's speaking the truth. I don't mean to tell you it's always easy, because sometimes the messages are hard for people in leadership roles. Like you're messing up, and you don't even know it, but look at what you're doing to other people mm-hmm. or your organization. So, speaking the truth is probably the one that I have heard as best feedback from clients. And it's the one that I think works best in my coaching strategy, you know, organizational work. You have to be willing to put the client relationship at risk, right? You have to be willing to get thrown out of the building to say the truth. Otherwise, why are you there, right? It helps to get paid up front too. So, (laughs) you know, I think about that and,
0: you know, you can tell people what they want to hear. Yeah. And that's not usually all that useful.
1: Well, you know, you can make some money doing that. But a year from now, if they go, gee, you know, Todd came in for a couple months and kicked around here and we had a lot of fun together, but nothing changed, then we both screwed up, Yep. right? So if it means there's some discomfort coming, but we got to where we wanted to go, I want to help you achieve your objectives. I don't want you to have, you know, if we have to have fun along the way, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. But if it's only about fun, then God, hire a comedian, mm-hmm. not me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that being said,
0: Todd, I really appreciate you Joyful taking your time and the hospitality in your house. Yeah in your office. So thanks so much. And thanks for being on the show. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Pleasure. Absolutely.